Welcome to a special edition of the Arthroscopy Podcast. This is the second of a two-part episode featuring Dr. Stephen Burkhart. Part one, if you haven't heard it, should not be missed. We discuss his June 2020 article in Arthroscopy entitled, The Basis of Innovation, Depth, Breadth, and Tenacity. This article was adapted from the planned inaugural Anna Innovations Lecture. Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Greetings, this is Rob Hartzler with TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of speaking with a man who needs no introduction to our listeners, Dr. Steve Burkhardt from San Antonio. Dr. Burkhardt is now retired from the practice of orthopedic surgery but he retains his role and title as the chairman of the board of BRIO, the Burkhart Research Institute for Orthopedics. Dr. Burkhart, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. One of the one of the things that you wrote in the article was about having to determine normal anatomy from pathoanatomy and how you were communicating with other uh, surgeons who were innovating at that time. I mean, nowadays, you know, if I wanted to ask my buddy about if something, what he thought about something, you know, I just save a video clip and text it off or something like that. Uh, how were y'all communicating about this arthroscopic pathology? Yeah, you have to remember, you know, this was in the days before email and internet. Um, and so you had to just communicate over the telephone or in person or by regular mail. And uh, and it was actually not that common. I forget when FedEx uh, uh, launched, but I think it may have even been before FedEx. So basically, we had to send things through regular mail. So Steve Snyder in Los Angeles came up with this great idea and uh, formed the Shoulder Arthroscopy Study Group. And I don't know the exact number. I think there were probably seven or eight of us in the United States that we're interested in shoulder arthroscopy and we're actually doing it. And so we all automatically became members of this shoulder arthroscopy study group. When you did a shoulder scope and you saw something that was either unusual or interesting or you didn't know what it was or you didn't know if it was normal or abnormal or normal variant, um, you, would, you would send a VHS video of that of that arthroscopy around to each member is like a chain mail. So, you know, you would send it to one guy and and he'd send it to the next guy and on down. And so what you would have to do is watch it and then you would have to send a letter to every member of the shoulder arthroscopy study group and uh, to tell them what you thought that was. So if you didn't do that, if you didn't send a letter to, to everyone, then you would be kicked out of the group. And I don't think we ever kicked anyone out of the group because we were all fascinated by it. And we got so much good feedback by it. And um, <clears throat> and then we would have a meeting of the shoulder arthroscopy study group every year at the ANA meeting. And it uh, seems like we may have had it at the academy as well. But we'd all get together in person uh, once or twice a year also. So do, so you had access to record parts of the cases on, on VHS tape? Yeah, this was, it was all VHS. It was before we had any uh, any CDs or DVDs. And uh, so it was kind of a 
cumbersome way to do it, but it was very effective at the time. Well, I mean, it was a matter of, you have to remember, it's we were looking for the first time looking at the shoulder from inside out without destroying tissue um, as we went in. So part of it was a matter of just deciding what was normal and what was abnormal. And then we were seeing structures that you couldn't see if you looked from outside in. You'd seeing, you would see them in a different way, things like the comma tissue and that type of thing. And so if you were really going to be able to communicate about them, then you had to have, have uh, names for them. So typically, if you're the one that discovered it and you realized that it, we needed a name for it, you, you had the naming rights unless you gave those up. <laughs> When, what was your approach to naming things? I mean, were you just trying to describe what you saw, or were you, were you trying to were you trying to come up with a name that would stick and you know be memorable? What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I thought of it in a couple of ways. I, I wanted it to be memorable, um, and I wanted it to be descriptive. I mean, from the standpoint of being memorable, it's kind of like uh, having a good hook in the chorus of a country and western song you know you want it to be almost like a sing-along where you're going everyone's going to remember the words uh but you wanted it to be descriptive too because otherwise you're not going to really make an association between what you see and what its name is so like the comma tissue is a good example it was this comma shaped arc at the uh, superlateral border of the upper subscap that you would see is much more pronounced when you would have a torn upper subscap. And so it was a, a comma shaped arc. Uh, it was like a real comma in uh, a right shoulder. Of course, it was a reverse comma in a left shoulder. It just made sense to me. And then we had uh, things like cable crescent. And, uh, you know, that, that actually had kind of a double origin, I guess, because it looks like a cable. You know, the, the cable crescent, as you know, is. Um, the portion of the supersonatus and and part of the insonatus tendon um, where you have this uh, thinner area we call the rotator crescent that's subtended by this arc of a thick cable-like structure we call the rotator cable. So, you know, I had done uh, an early biomechanical study on that and we came up uh, with some data that indicated that the rotator crescent was stress shielded by the rotator cable. And, and this went along with this whole concept that I had had a few years earlier that the function that, well, that it sort of explained why the function of someone with a crescent shaped rotator cuff tear could be entirely normal, even though they had a big tear, a reasonably big tear in the cuff, because that rotator cable functioned like the cable uh, on a suspension bridge. And so that was, you know, it was initially a hypothesis, but then we got to look at that in the lab and, and showed it to be true. And then later, Sean O'Griscoll and his associates uh, confirmed it again in another study. So, you know, it, it, those kinds of things were, were fun to, to kind of have the naming rights for something like that, but you had, it looked like a cable and it also acted like a cable biomechanically. So that one made perfect sense to me. Well, you mentioned, you know, that there were fun times, but um, obviously from the article, you know, you wrote a lot about how much grit it took and, um, you know, and tenacity to kind of overcome the the powers that that the powers that were of shoulder surgery at that time. Um, and I was just sort of wondering, 
what if you thought that there was any time when you were close to maybe giving up the mission or something like that? Or maybe if you thought about what maybe the worst time was in terms of just thinking about the paradigm shift failing? Well, I think, you know, first of all, the conflict in retrospect shouldn't have been a surprise to us, although it kind of was, but, you know, conflict is a consequence of any paradigm shift. I think we didn't initially realize that we were involved in the early stages of a, of a paradigm shift, though. What we realized early on, there was a, a group of very talented arthroscopic surgeons that could repair the rotator cuff and repair instability with very rudimentary uh, implants and, uh, and suture passing devices. And they were just naturally gifted at this at this particular skill set, and uh, and I think that's what kept it alive. It's it sort of what was a spark in a way. We saw it could be done, but then that kept kept it alive when there were reports coming out by other surgeons who said, "Oh, the failure rate for these arthroscopic instability repairs is so high, you should never do them." And there must be something different about. But then you would see certain guys that really were skilled at it that had much better results. So it became apparent that we just needed to develop techniques and tools for the masses of shoulder surgeons, basically, so that you would have something that everyone could do a good job with. And you needed something that you could teach people, even if they were doing only the occasional rotator cuff repair or that type of thing, teach them to do a good, competent, solid job of it. <clears throat> and of course, that was going to be years in the making. And it implied that we were going to devote, going to obligate ourselves to developing not only instruments, but uh, uh, teaching techniques uh, and then gradually improving the techniques and the instruments so that everyone could learn to do this. There were there was a time maybe in the early 90s I guess where there were a few of us that were doing a, quite a few rotator cuff repairs arthroscopically and we would commiserate at some of the meetings and say gosh you know it just doesn't seem like we're reaching all that many people yet and you know is this ever going to really catch on and uh and then we would kind of you know make it make make this small group of people fe make each other feel good by saying well i guess the very worst that could happen is that you know if nobody else learns to do it we have job security because we know how to do it and we can patients want it I mean, there's the demand because patients were just knocking the doors down to get it done. They just couldn't mm -hmm. find to do it. You know, that would have been probably in the early 90s, 93, 94, maybe in, in, into the mid-90s. And I would say is when things really started to, to take off, probably was by the late 90s. Uh, late 90s to early 2000s, it became obvious at that point because there was just exponential growth in um, the interest in shoulder arthroscopy, um, you know, the number of papers that were uh, being submitted, the number of studies um, that were being done, the number of podium presentations. And, you know, if you were to look at, um, you know, sales and, as an indicator 
for the popularity of, of the uh, procedures, then you know the company sales were <clears throat> beginning to really go up. Uh, maybe not quite exponentially at that point, but going up very fast. Um, I was just chuckling to myself a little bit earlier today because the uh, the arthroscopy journal um, put out this video on uh, on Twitter that was demonstrating the comma and. Um, so I was just thinking that that was uh, that was an interesting coincidence that uh, you know we might talk about sort of new media today and that um, and that we had the comma being uh, demonstrated in that way on you know on the media of our time I guess you would say. Yeah, and you know I've tried to make this point over and over too is that if you're going to really make a difference if you if you think you have a really good idea and you want to reach a lot of people with that idea you know you've got to create a critical mass um because there was the there was the demand as i said for arthroscopic shoulder procedures we didn't have the critical mass of surgeons to satisfy that demand so for it to really become mainstream that's what had to be done and so you had to reach those surgeons through the the media of the time which in those days, the media were basically podium presentations and journal articles. We, we didn't really have access to the mainstream podium or the mainstream journals. They weren't really interested in publishing anything or, or having podium presentations on anything to do with shoulder arthroscopy for a long, long time. And so fortunately, you know, in combination with the, the knee arthroscopy people, the shoulder arthroscopy guys, we all got together and started our own journal, the Arthroscopy Journal, and we started our own organization, uh, ANA. And uh, so, so that helped us really get the word. And, and then we, we used those media to create, I guess, sort of new ancillary uh, means of teaching. So, for example, uh, through ANA, we uh, were able to be... Uh, instrumental in starting the orthopedic learning center and uh which we you know we shared the uh the burden of uh the expense for that with with the academy and uh but it was essentially it was a, a new way of teaching things and then beyond that once we were able to do um remote learning and remote teaching uh by means of video uh, and, and this incrementally and gradually improved over the years but you know, starting probably in the late late 90s was when we began to do these remote transmissions of surgeries, you know, whether they were cadaver surgeries or live surgeries from the OR. And so that was something that was new. Uh, and then, of course, now you have you know, Twitter, you have Facebook, and, and I, I don't have a Facebook account. I, I wouldn't know how to tweet anything if my life depended on it. So I'm not an expert on that, but you guys know how to do that. So podcasts. <laughs> well, well yeah, I'm being walked through this podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I just wanted to take the opportunity to congratulate you again on um, just an absolutely amazing career. And it's really mind boggling to, number of contributions that you made to uh, to orthopedic surgery and shoulder surgery and uh, and really just helping countless number of patients to uh, improve their lives through all of these things. So um, 
I hope that you're, you've had a, even though we've had the COVID crisis, uh, just a, a great start to a well-deserved retirement and, um, and congratulations again and strong work, Steve. Any closing thoughts for us? I would really like to just end this by talking just a, a little bit about craft. You know, if you think of the definition of craft, it's a skill that relies on and maximizes manual competence. And so I think one of the most important crafts in the world is surgery. So as surgeons, we're all craftsmen. And then there are basically these two faces of craft, one of which is expertise. Expertise requires depth depth of expertise so that you're really good at doing something over and over again. And that's led to uh, super specialization. But then there's problem solving. And that's the other face of craft. You have to be able to solve problems as you encounter them in surgery. And that certainly is uh, benefited uh, by breadth of experience, breadth of knowledge, and what you'd call lateral thinking. So I think that we need to um, think about that in terms of how we prepare um, young surgeons for their practices. I think, you know, there's a tendency now to have super specialists, and I think that's good for patients. But along the way, you need to have that breadth that gives you, you the ability to take information from one domain to solve a problem in another domain. And... Uh, I think that's a, an educational challenge that uh, that Anna is really uh, leading the way uh, is really leading the way in at this point. So, do you I think, think that so the that breadth question really it made me wonder about my own career because I've already gotten to a pretty specialized shoulder only practice, even though it's 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 somewhat broad doing arthroplasty and fracture care and arthroscopy and so it's broad in that way but it's very narrow in terms of the anatomical distribution and so I've just I've felt almost a little bit guilty about lack of breadth in my own practice and is it that is some as a surgeon that has my sort of practice is that where does the breadth come from is it within orthopedic surgery to keep in touch with what's going on in other areas? Is it other surgical disciplines? Is it outside of medicine where the breadth comes from? What do you think about that? Well, I think that's a great question, Rob. I think it, I think it's not only training and vocational. For example, you know, I had a broad experience early in my practice with a lot of different types of trauma. I was in foot surgery, hand surgery, total joints, total hips, total knees. Um, total shoulders. So, you know, I had all those things. So I might see a problem in the shoulder where I would sort of harken back to, you know, something that I learned from doing total hips. And uh, so there is that. But then there's also, I think, just the, I think there's avocation and there's also just kind of thinking about how you can apply something from one part of your life to another part of your life. And one of the, the great things that, um, the, I guess the great analogy that I use is kind of the analogy of solutions around the ranch to solutions in surgery. And some of the things that, um, that we would use to solve problems, I mean, just simple problems, 
on the ranch would have application with solving similar problems in surgery. And whether that's a type of knot that you might use or whether how do you keep a loop tight while you're trying to add more half hitches to it. And so, you know, just think in, in simplistic terms, gosh, how, how would I solve this same problem with a rope at the ranch versus a suture in the operating room? I think that's, that's also another aspect of it, things in your everyday life. Thanks again for being on uh, tonight with us, Steve, and um, we wish you well, and, and I hope that we'll get you on again um, for, for uh, something similar. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. This article, entitled The Basis of Innovation, Depth, Breadth, and Tenacity, was published in the June 2020 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal and can be found on the journal's website at arthroscopyjournal.org.